ain't going to sing, peeps, but what a difference a day makes. Yeah, today's March 2nd because yesterday was March 3rd. Again, H being the letter for March. You're watching Market Call 1 p.m., top of the hour here on the East Coast. We're going to put 30 minutes on the clock. We're going to be steadfast to that. I am Guy Adami, joined as always by Dan Nathan. Today's episode brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. And of course, Open Exchange, Dan, they manage the virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. There is so much happening in the markets across the globe. We're going to try to make some sense of all of it. Oh, by the way, in case you thought I forgot, Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting is going to be joining us in a few brief minutes. Dan, you want to flip up the script here, change it up a bit. How are you today? Yeah, you know, we usually start with a lot of the macro here, Guy, but you know, there's so much interesting stuff going on as it relates to single stocks and we're getting to the tail ends, the tag ends. Don't they say that in the markets? The tag ends of S&P 500 earnings. It's been some massive moves, man. You know, we were talking about previewing the Salesforce, we're previewing some other names. Zoom had like an implied move of what, 17% in either direction and ended up not moving a whole heck of a lot. Same thing with Salesforce, didn't really move after its earnings. I know oftentimes you say good news, bad price action, bad setup. I thought that was really interesting, but let's just start with some stuff that's just kind of catching our eye over the last couple of days. This is not the macro, man. And one of the things has to do with the macro, though, is that U.S. multinationals suspending sales of their products in Russia. We saw Apple do it. We saw Nike do it. I mean, it really actually wasn't even a blip when the Apple headline came out yesterday. I was just curious, your take, guy, are they setting a very bad precedent for geopolitical events? Are they going to have to do it when something more important happens at a much more important country, maybe like, say, China? Exactly. I mean, it's this interesting choice of adjectives, bad precedent. I mean, they're setting a precedent, right? So obviously they're suspending sales in Russia because of the aggression that Russia is currently undertaking. I think we all understand that. Now you'll say it's not a big deal for the stock. And you're right. I mean, Russia's got the GDP, I think of New Zealand or something. So in terms of making a blip on their radar screen, it's not a big deal. But in terms of setting a precedent, that's why we're talking about this, folks. Because if you've watched Market Call or Fast Money or listened to our podcast You know, for months, probably since last summer, we've been talking about the potential for China to invade Taiwan and the hostilities there to flare up. If that were to happen, and we talked about it post happening post-Olympics, if Apple and Nike go down this route with Russia, by definition, Dan, in my opinion, they will be forced to do the same thing in mainland China. And that, and I'm going to choose to use this word, could be potentially catastrophic for the stocks. Well, think about it. I mean, Apple's fate have been very much tied, their international growth in in areas like China. And it's not just selling to their consumers, but it's also where a lot of their phones are manufactured and where a lot of the components that they get that go into, you know, their phones and computers and and other consumer electronics. So to them, this is a really dicey one. I Mm -hmm. think it's interesting, though, Guy, that, you know, we just had the Olympics there and there's been a lot of talk about human rights forever as it relates to China. It is a repression. 
oppressive regime. And, you know, when you think about like totalitarian states and dictators, I mean, you got to put China up there much higher than, let's say, Russia. And there didn't seem to be any major objections to, you know, some of the actions, uh, you know, during the Olympics that by U.S. multinationals. So I think that's interesting. Going back and looking at that Apple chart for one second, and we're not going to spend too much time on this, though. Last week, when things got a little funky, I mean, that stock almost kissed that 200-day moving average. It bounced off of it. You heard me yesterday. Guys, I think the Fed, as they've been tapering bond buying over the last couple of months, can I tell you what they're probably buying? I think they're buying Apple. I really do. I know that sounds crazy to some people. Guy, way in here, you've been talking about the plunge, uh, plunge protection for years now, the potential that exists. And if they can't buy bonds, well, what do you do? You buy the largest equity that has a 6 7% stake or weighting in the S&P 500 to help kind of put a floor on the equity markets. I know that sounds crazy. What do you think? No, I don't think it's crazy at all. I mean, instead of buying the broader market, you buy the proxy of the broader market, which is, in fact, Apple. And listen, I know this is going to sound crazy, but their people are looking at the same things that our people are looking at. Our people being myself, Dan, Amanda, Carter, Lily, the whole crew. So they know where the 200-day moving average came in. And you think it's coincidence, by the way, that it traded down to 152 last week, the 200-day moving average at the time, being 151.60? I think not. But again, I think it's really important to sort of nail down this point that you're making, Dan. It's a really important one. They chose to go down this route, they being Apple and Nike with Russia. You got to believe they're thinking about the same things that we're thinking of. So maybe their intel suggests that China-Taiwan hostilities won't flare up. Maybe they know something that we don't know. Maybe they thought it out better than we did. But I got to tell you something. If something were to happen between China and Taiwan, if Apple and or Nike didn't do the same thing, the commensurate move that they did with Russia, that's problematic. But that's probably for another show. In terms of the chart, I think Carter thinks this one breaks down. I'd love to hear him thoughts on a little while. Nike's the other one, by the way, we have to take a look at. Oddly enough, Dan, and I know you know this, you look at valuations, both Nike and Apple trade around 27 and a half times next year's numbers. Neither one are cheap by any stretch of the imagination. And if this were to sort of manifest itself, what was not cheap would become extraordinarily expensive overnight. Yeah, well, Nike's interesting. Filled in that huge gap from last summer that was an earnings gap. And the stock has been very volatile. And I think for a lot of the issues as it relates to inflation, as it relates to supply chains, as it relates to just the kind of ebb and flow of consumer demand in this kind of uncertain times here. But, you know, you've gone from nearly 180 in November all the way down to 135. And that multiple is still 36 times the current year, 28 times next. And our point that we've been making about Apple is that if earnings growth is declining or it's in line with a market multiple, why shouldn't that PE also be? So this one's a little fat, especially with the S&P that's trading about 19 times. On the similar front guy, I mean, you got to look at this Roku. You know, when we talk about some of the companies that are taking some action, some seem about window dressing. The others are, I guess, a bit more important than that. You know, Roku has obviously this over-the-top streaming platform. And the news this morning was that they were taking RT News, which is the Russian state news, off of that platform. The fact that the propaganda network was on there is kind of fascinating here. I can't imagine that the stock's down 6% today or 5 or 6% because of that news 
alone, but man, oh man, look at this chart going back a year. I mean, it's a bit of a widow maker here. That decline from that epic double top up there just below 500 bucks all the way to where it is about 128, 129 is amazing. And looking where it bottomed last week after earnings right around 100 bucks, you go back to last spring. I mean, that's a pretty fast, I mean, they're literally, that thing should be like an NFT or something like that, that encapsulates the market over the last Last couple of years here, guy. We talk about risk reward all the time, and we talked about a TLT chart that looks hauntingly familiar to this. Obviously, completely different instruments, but you understand my point. And those double tops held up. I think we actually talked about those double tops over the summer. The potential for that it's come to fruition. I'll say this: you drew the right line. It's almost as if you've been instructed by the great Carter Braxton Worth, <laughs> because that downtrend line is intact. I think. Me personally, the risk reward for this sets up really well on the long side. Your downside, the green line coming in around 103, 104, the recent low we saw. And your upside through this trend line, I mean, things could get really dicey very quickly to the upside. By the way, it's interesting that people only use dicey when things go lower. Things get dicey when they go higher, too. Panic works on both sides of the equation. And if you were to break this downtrend line, you could absolutely see panic buying in this. So I think for a trade, Roku looks pretty cool here, Dan. Yeah, you know what's funny? You know, Melissa Lee looked at me once and more than once looked at me with like a kind of a quizzical look on the set of Fast Money one day when I kind of suggested that a stock was crashing up. And I'm just curious how you weigh in on that. Obviously, you know, we use that term all the time when a stock crashes or a market crashes or a commodity, but what do you think crashing up? It's kind of like panic buying a little bit, right? I think so. I mean, I totally agree with you in terms of that. I mean, that might probably not the phrase that I would use. I mean, waves crash on the beach in a downward fashion. But listen, I totally get what you're saying. You're right to sort of bring that up and talk about it because people confuse, I think, panic selling. And when the same thing happens to the upside, they'll never call it panic buying. But again, it's the exact same thing, except we've been conditioned to believe that buying is fundamental and natural and selling is somehow panicked, Dan. Well, here's one. You highlighted a market call the other day, Lockheed Martin. And I think it had to do with the fact that Germany finally said they're going to get their NATO defense Mm -hmm. spending threshold up to that 2% of GDP, which they were supposed to be at. And you saw what happened to Lockheed. It had been kind of trading between 380 and 400, a big defense contractor, after have already made a really big run from maybe 330 in December to those levels. And on on that, you know, news of the invasion and news about what the Germans might do, the stock broke out to a new all-time high above like 398 or something like that. Went straight, guy. It closed yesterday, I think at 458 or something. So this morning, you know, I was thinking about putting a trade on in this one to the downside because when you have a parabolic move like that, they often, you know, will come back to that breakout level, right? And at one point earlier today, it was down 5%. I mean, down 5%. So you kind of get a sense that gravity does work in markets also. No, absolutely. I agree with you. And all those defense names, I mean, very reasonable valuations, but to your point, they really got ahead of themselves. And we saw huge volumes in all of those names, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, and so on. So it's important now to look sort of broader market, Dan, just to get out of the macro and sort of get a little granular in terms of what's going on here. I mean, we look at this and say, you know, we're still in this downtrend from basically middle to late December. Makes sense in terms of the Fed pivot. We're seeing some relief rally today, maybe on Jerome Powell talking about just 25 basis points. Maybe that takes the 50 basis points out, and that's what the market's rallying on. I have no idea. I will say this. I still think we're in this downtrend. I still think the 200-day is sloping lower. 
I still think we'll test 4,000, if not 3,750 over the next couple months. Yeah, well, here we are. The S&P 500, you know, it's going to be pressing up against 4,400. 4,463 is that 200-day moving average. You also see that downtrend that you're talking about there. They intersect. So maybe we get a little a little more juice to the upside here. But I really feel like we're kind of in a one-step forward, two steps back. And if you think about that trend that you're talking about over the last couple of months, it's a series of lower highs and lower lows. And 4,000 definitely seems like should be on the cards. That was the breakout level from last Last spring or so, that nice round number, people were really focused on it. But all of a lot to your point about the equity markets palpitations of late has had to do with the move in yields here. And you know, you and I were kind of in a similar camp. While you thought the 10-year US Treasury yield was going to go straight to 2%, which it did, and it got above it at 205. And you also thought once we got up there that you could see a flight to quality in these uncertain sort of geopolitical times. And what did we see? Talk to me about a move in the 10-year yield from 205, above two-year resistance, if you will, and then all the way down to 171 today, and it's bouncing a little bit today here. The volatility, as you've been highlighting in yields, seems a little bit aggressive, and it might mean something more is going to happen. It's unhealthy. I mean, it's unhealthy, the volatility. I mean, I'm sure Carter can speak to this as well. There's no way bond yields should move 10, 12 basis points a day. This is you're talking about again, then U.S. 10 year yields moving. It's it's mind boggling that they're moving and nobody seems to care about it. Somehow this makes sense. It makes zero sense. I mean, it speaks to, again, a Federal Reserve that's just completely lost their way. But you're right to point out that when 10 year yields did get above two percent, we thought there would be a flight to quality in the form of bond yields on a market sell off that would take 10 year yields back down. And we get twos, tens around 30 basis points in the form of. One and a half into twos, 1.8 into tens. And I got to tell you something, Dan. We got damn close. And I'm shocked, actually, that we got all the way down to 171. But here we are at 18 again. What does this tell me? It tells me the market's struggling. Do we have growth? Do we have inflation? Do we have no growth and inflation? Stagflation that Danny's been talking about. And that's exactly what this bond market is struggling with. Yeah, well, you know what likes it today are bank stocks. And we talked about them a couple of times this week on Market Call. And yesterday was a really bad day for banks. Maybe it was just the aggressive move lower um, in yields. Maybe it was, to your point, you know, the idea that you know the sanctions could have some knock-on effects. Maybe we see the European economy slow. Maybe a lot of our banks have exposure over there. Who knows? But they like it today. They're bouncing. I'll just say this. With JP Morgan, which at one point was down like four and a half percent yesterday, only up two percent in line with the S&P. That's not exactly strong um, in my book, Guy. But let's lastly look at crude. This was a chart that I ripped off of Carter Braxton Worth. He did it last night on CNBC's Fast Money. It goes back to the mid-aughts here. You see that resistance level that we're really banging up against here in WTI. Maybe that's about 112, 113, 114 or so. There was a couple highs back in that kind of QE period, both financial crisis, 2010, 11, 12, 13. But then you saw that precipitous drop in 2014 when the Fed started to taper bond purchases, rates started going higher, the dollar started going higher. And it really didn't uh, matter about the demand dynamics, but it was definitely subject to, you know, kind of weakening expectations for growth at different times in 15 and 16. But here we are, man. I mean, like to me, I know we talked a lot about crude, but it just doesn't see, I just don't see it blowing through there. There would have to be like World War III for that. 
Yeah, I mean, now this is this when you look at this chart, it certainly looks like a bit of a short term blow off top without question. And again, you got to back out that minus number, but it doesn't really matter. I think the chart illustrates exactly the levels we're at and potential to sort of stop here. It makes sense. But again, it's important to point out, I think a lot of people new to the game or just sort of people reading the headlines and now coming around to crude oil say, oh, the only reason it's higher is on the back of this Russian Ukraine situation. And that's part of it. It's not all of it. It's not all of it by any stretch of imagination. The supply-demand fundamentals have been in place for a long time, and we have talked about that. But to answer your question specifically, you look at a chart like this, and I'm sure Carter has some thoughts. This has textbook potential short-term blow-off top written all over it, which is a great time to bring in the aforementioned. I just like saying aforementioned because it's one of those long words that makes you sound smart. How are you, Carter Braxtonworth? It's such a good word because <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it says a lot in, in one word. The person whose name I just mentioned, but we capture it with aforementioned. Now, now we hear us talking about crude, Carter. So wax poetic because I know you've brought some charts along with you as well. Sure. So, I mean, the, the issue is the steepness of the ascent. We know that great moves come from news, right? It's not random defense contractors are moving because there's news, there's a war on, and there's going to be more spending. We know that wheat is going limit up every day because Ukraine is a huge producer of wheat, just as if you don't get FDA approval and you drop 30%, there's a reason for that. So great moves are always fundamentally based. The idea is, though, that maybe we can find in the chart setup mm-hmm. uh, the direction before the news is released. And we have certainly a great move in energy stocks. We have a great move in crude oil. At this point, though, what is priced in? That is the ultimate question. And I think it has to be said that perhaps it's all priced in. And I think I do have a a couple of energy charts here. This is our time when we can toggle. I just like saying that word as well. But please, as they say. Let's toggle away. All right. So this is uh, identical to, or with a little bit more history on it, to the chart that we just had up on the screen. And what we know, if you did Pretend it didn't say energy select funds. Pretend that was gone. It was just that blue chart and you didn't know what it was. One would say, looking at this chart, at this point, whatever this is, is this a sneaker company or sushi or soda water? It's farther above its 150-day moving average at any point in the period. Now, does that mean it has to stop here? No, but the odds are increasingly high that it's overdone and will. So if you look at the next iteration, And this is, I guess, how I might draw the line, so to speak. I've kind of put the range that matters. You have the 0809 lows, a financial crisis, right? And you have the plunge low of COVID cut off. And you also have the spike highs of 2007 and 2013 cut So call this the range, if you will. We're basically at the point where, this is for energy stocks, right? Where the upside, while there might be a bit more, doesn't compensate for the downside risk. I'm with you. And just so folks at home know, XLE, 45% of it is ExxonMobil. And I believe it's, I want to say Chevron as well. You throw EOG and Conoco in, and those four stocks are north of 50% of this. So just so you understand what you're looking at. And I'm with you. I think you make a great point. You know, those standard deviations we get away from moving averages is suggestive that at a certain point, we're just going to have an exhaustion in the back and fill, Carter. That's it. And we know the reason it's it's so... Well, what did you say? Crash up. Yes, <laughs> I would say it's like plunge up. You can't plunge up. Waves do crash down, as you said, guys. So, but it's overdone, right? We know that you get moments of excess in both directions. And often, quite often, they are reconciled. Remember lumber earlier a year or so ago? Great moves 
get worked off. You know, Carter, that chart, that XLE, the long-term one looks like a head and shoulders top within a head and shoulders top forming. Is that even a thing? I know that's probably one of those things that you kind of roll your eyes when you hear like dummies like me say that every once in a while. Here's what it is. That if you are something that over time is progressing, advancing, whether it's knowledge or a chart through a growth business, you're always up. If you're cyclical, think about it. Ford Motor right now is the same price it was in 1987. Just conceive of that. That's 25 years. And forget about adjusted for inflation, meaning it's a disaster. There's no pretending it's a good investment. If you're cyclical in nature, you're always stuck. You're always kind of big moves up and down, but you're not going anywhere. Here's Ford. I mean, I think you buy this for a bounce. But the question is, if it's the same price it was 25 years ago, is that an investment? Uh, It's not a good one. Well, I mean, here's one of the things. All right, so we have Ford up. Let's talk about this for a second because the news this morning, I don't think it's a huge surprise to a lot of investors who've been tracking, you know, the legacy autos, the ones that have those internal combustion engines, you know, versus the EVs and where they're trying to diversify. I mean, that was a big part of the story last year. That stock, you know, went from what a hat size in 2020 or a baby's hat size, you know, all the way up to 25 earlier this year. It came crashing down. They've had some issues dealing with supply chain stuff, access to chips, and you know the spending that they've identified for EVs. This morning, they say they're going to actually split their EV and their legacy auto businesses. Stock's up 7%. I mean, there's pretty good technical setup there, Carter, right? Like when you think oh, yeah, about yeah. the I mean, things lining I, up I was right equating here. Ford to the notion of energy in a long cycle where you're just vacillating with no real direction. That's the case yeah. with Ford. But in terms of tactically, do you buy this for a bounce? It couldn't be better, right? You Just as you've drawn the lines, a sell-off to a level of support where rebound potential is high. Carl, let's take a look at Tesla because it's interesting. You wonder if Tesla's actually rallying on the back of crude oil. I mean, you can obviously make that fundamental judgment that the higher energy goes, the more Tesla becomes a valuable company. What are your thoughts looking at your Tesla chart? So no lines, right? No judgments rendered. And then let's toggle. Take a look at the next one. Basically, this is as well-defined a trend as you could have. It literally touched down over and over and over to the penny. It broke trend. Now, to be fair, all stocks broke. That's your your sort of Ukraine-Russia sell-off. But this rally back leaves Tesla right up against the kill zone, if you will. You're up against the underneath the down the line. And I don't think you buy this year. I think you fade this year. So, Carl, let me ask you this, because this has been a really important stock from a sentiment standpoint. It was added to the S&P in late 2020, and the stock like doubled after that announcement, right? And we're talking about like serious market cap here. I think at its highs a couple months ago, it was the sixth largest stock in the S&P 500. And we've heard all the comparisons relative to the market caps and the sales of all of its competitors and that sort of thing. But this has been like literally the meme stock of all meme stocks, right? And so we saw Facebook get cut in half. Literally, it got cut in half in four or so months, losing, you know, four, almost $500 billion in market cap. This thing now from 1274 to 850 or wherever the hell it is right now. I mean, talk to us about the significance of these leaders. And, and they were emerging leaders from a sentiment standpoint, from a technological standpoint, and then obviously from a market cap standpoint. I mean, what what is the ability for a Facebook to come back after declining 50% or if Tesla were to go to 600, which I don't know, to my eye, I don't see any support to about 600. That would be a 50% retracement. Just talk to us about the psychology of that. 
Sure. Well, for starters, we know that this drawdown is quite close to 50%. I mean, it's, it's 43, 42 anyway. In order to draw down that much, almost invariably, you were a great winner preceding the drawdown, right? And I'm not talking about a stock that's been in a chronic downtrend that goes out of business like an Enron. You get drops and gaps and it's all the way to zero. But when you have a high flyer that has this kind of give back, you start to create new buying interest once you're down a certain percent. There's always a class of prospective shareholder who never, who missed it in their mind, right? Not their fault. They just happened to not participate, but always wanted to get involved and yet didn't want to chase. And so once you're down a certain amount, whether it's going to be Netflix on its crash or Facebook, you do attract both people who are short, who want to successfully cover, that represents buying interest. New buyers say, gosh, this is my chance. I've never participated in Facebook or Tesla. This is my chance. So those things do happen, not at down 3%, not down 7%. They happen in epic sell-offs. The Tesla sell-off is epic, but the question is this, have we expunged enough of the excess? That's the question, because if you go back just to that longer term chart, still there's so much room that it could fall. Yeah, and I think you're suggesting that we have some more room on the downside, which, by the way, I happen to agree with you. We got to look at some of the casino names, specifically Las Vegas Sands. We could have picked Wynn. We'd pick an LVS. But big day today, Carter Braxtonworth. You're looking at this. I can sort of see your arrows, so I sort of know where your head is at. Talk to me on LVS. Let's go. Here we go. So what we have, and this is an up close and personal, right? It's just a couple of months. Note the first and single most important thing, that heavy volume up thrust and gap in mid-January. And the stock follows through, gets to the high 40s, and then now it's dipped, it's sold off, it's corrected. But the correction is on light volume, and it's bouncing to the penny off the 150-day moving average. Now, the next chart is the exact same thing, just a little bit longer term. So the real question is, is this the early goings in a bearish to bullish reversal? As defined, the trend is changing from a downtrend to an uptrend, the 150-day moving average starting to flat. Look at the next uh, iteration, exact same chart, but I've just drawn a trend line. Let's toggle. There's a trend line. There's the 150 moving average. We go back and forth. The 150 average is serving the purpose of telling us when we're transitioning. One, we've moved above the downtrend line with news that has to be news that up thrust and gap. And now we've checked back to the 150. And then one more iteration, same exact time frame. Is this a reversal formation? People name patterns when there were no computers because no one believed them. They thought they were all quacks. And so they said, don't you see? It looks like a head and shoulders. Don't you see? It looks like a flag or it looks like a pen. Or in this case, it looks like a cup and handle. It doesn't matter what you call it. It's what a reversal looks like. And by all accounts, there's a lot of upside and limited downside. I'm agree with you, by the way. By the, not that anybody particularly cares, but the W in my dawn trade was win. And I think win goes up from here as well. Very similar charts. Let's look at Pfizer drug as the old timers call it. Right, but here, here, real quickly, oh, guy, really quickly, I got to say, I threw this in for one for the road here, and it was really important because literally Carter and I were crossing emails. I was sending out some stuff for the hit that I do for Fidelity each week, so check that out on my Twitter later today because Carter was sending out on Worth Charting his bullish take on Pfizer, and I also had one, and we did not talk about it, so I'm going to offer an options trade on my In the Money hit on Fidelity, so check that out on my Twitter later. But give it to me here, man, because that is a much better chart than I could draw. Well, it's got some nice colors. But uh, here, what do we know? There are three distinct drawdowns. They're each slightly over 20%. Each one stopped at a trend line that is not manipulated by me. They just connect the three spots. And 
it has bounce rule. Guess what? With a little luck, both you and me, the single best performing healthcare stock today in the S&P 500 healthcare sector is Pfizer. Well, Carter, with a little luck, we can make this whole damn thing work out for you Paul McCartney fans out there. But I said we're putting 30 minutes on the clock, and I am true to my word today. So I want to thank you, as always, for joining us, Carter. I learned, and, and I'm not being glib here. I learned a lot from Carter all the time, and specifically on this one. Thank you again, CBW. I love yes, when you Carter. toggle. I love everything about you, by the way. And thanks to our sponsors, FactSet and Open Exchange. Tune in tomorrow, 1 p.m. We'll have EY from SoFi. That, of course, Liz Young from SoFi. Oh, excuse me. Special time tomorrow. My bad, peeps. 11 a.m. Holy <laughs> tamole, as they say. 11 a.m. tomorrow. Set your alarms or whatever you set on those stupid Apple devices, and we'll see you then. See you then.